This is Anabaptist Perspectives. The Anabaptist movement began nearly 500 years ago. Should we celebrate this landmark? If so, how? Welcome to another episode of Anabaptist Perspectives. I'm here with John Roth, and we'll be talking about the 500th anniversary of the Anabaptist movement. Uh, but before we begin, John, would you take a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, sure. I grew up in Holmes County, Ohio. I came to Goshen College uh, as, a, as a student, uh, fell in love with history while I was there, uh, went on to study history uh, at the University of Chicago. And then in 1985, I came back to Goshen and started, well, 36 years now as a professor of history. For 28 of those years, I served as editor of an academic journal called the Mennonite Quarterly Review, and uh, also worked then as director of the Mennonite Historical Library, which is a comprehensive collection of Anabaptist, Mennonite, Hutterite, and Amish materials here on, on, on campus. Just this past July, I retired from those positions and accepted uh, a new position as project director of an initiative called Anabaptism at 500. And so that is the focus, uh, has been the focus of my uh, energies and will be for the next, uh, well, two and a half or three years until that event comes around in 2025. Yeah, so I'm, I'm curious on this though, because we're saying the Anabaptist movement or tradition, however you want to frame it, um, is about to turn 500 years old, uh, marking its beginning at, at 1525. Um, but is there actual agreement that that is when the movement started? Um, or is there more nuance uh, to that specific date? Oh, that's a great question. You know, the human mind likes round numbers. And <laughs> so we think in terms of decades and hundreds, and so 500. That's one of the quirks of this, I mean, that we celebrate this round number. But I think the deeper part of your question is also important. In Anabaptism was a movement that was deeply embedded in the Protestant Reformation, which, you know, some people you know, go back to 1517 when, when Luther nailed his 95 Theses, because the early Anabaptists were definitely caught up in that Protestant Reformation and Luther's appeal to sola scriptura, to the word alone. They would have said, yes, that's us. We also know that Anabaptism reflected currents in late medieval Catholicism. The book by Thomas Akempis called The Imitation of Christ, one of the most widely reprinted uh, books, I think next to the Bible perhaps, The Imitation of Christ, that uh, sort of handbook of practical Christianity really was a, a profound influence on the early Anabaptist movement. They were shaped by late medieval spirituality, by the work of, of Toller and Meister Eckhart, who talked about Galassenheit. So when you read Galassenheit in early Anabaptist texts, they really are drawing on currents from the Catholic Church. And we shouldn't forget, they all were born in that Catholic context. And the movement itself, so we identified January 21, 1525, the first adult baptisms, which was an important symbolic marker because that was the crucial point after which the authorities explicitly said 
you must baptize infants, you may not baptize adults. That was a crucial marker. But the movement had many currents coming into it, and it was by no means clear in January 1525 exactly how this movement was going to take form or what shape it would take. And we know, for example, that the Dutch Anabaptists, who identify much more closely with the work of Menno Simons, would not necessarily look to January 1525 as their birth moment. The Hutterite Chronicle does include one of the earliest accounts of that baptism in 1525, but of course, their birth story is focused on Jakob Hutter and that commitment to community of goods. The Amish have their own narrative about when the Amish begin, woven into the deeper story. So, all of these dates we should regard with a little bit of, oh, we shouldn't hang on to them too much, but they serve as symbolic markers. And that's why January 1525 has become, for many Anabaptists, a point of reference as they think about their history. So I'm curious on, on another side of that. There's many Anabaptist groups that are getting ready to or have plans of some form of celebration or commemorating this this date when it comes in 2025. How have Anabaptists celebrated this in the past? Or is, is that even the right word? What did we do, for example, in 1925? Was there any anything special that happened among the Anabaptists on the 400-year mark? Yeah, great question. The story of commemorating uh, beginning points is a complicated one. And for most of our history, I would say most Anabaptist groups have not paid that much attention to these moments. The first that I've identified was an effort in 1859. A Mennonite pastor in South Germany, his name was uh, August Heinrich Neufeld, who was pastor of a small congregation in Ebersheim, recognized in 1859 that the death date of Menno Simons was coming up, the 300th, I guess it would have been the 300th date of Menno Simons' death. And so he said we should observe this. He had seen in the Lutheran Church how attentive they were to the 1817 uh, commemoration, 300 years since Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses, and then the birth date of Martin Luther and the death date of Martin, and there were statues of Martin Luther and the other reformers going up all over Germany as a kind of a national hero. And he thought, well, Mennonites should do something like this too. And so he published in a periodical called the Mennonite Schabletta, he published this idea that let's use this as an occasion to bring a divided group of Mennonites together around the commemoration of Menno Simons. And to his astonishment, it met with a firestorm of controversy because uh, people said, oh, no, we don't celebrate Menno. Our identity is the birth of Jesus. You know, we don't honor earthly leaders. And other people said, well, it's not Menno. It's the 1525 that we should be focused on. He kind of backed away. Well, the Dutch went ahead, and if you go to Wittmarsum, if you go to, Germany, uh, to, to the Netherlands today, you will see a statue or a, a monument that was erected in 1860, honoring the death of Menno Simons. So it did occur, 
but it was a debated and contested moment. Some people said, you're just trying to be like the Lutherans. It's a very worldly thing. So when the 400th anniversary came along in 1925, Mennonites in Europe again asked, should we do something about this? And the Swiss Mennonites took initiative and invited representatives from eight other Mennonite groups to gather in Switzerland. There were two representatives from North America who joined, and they agreed that they would gather on the condition that it not be a organizational meeting, and actually that they would not celebrate communion. That was one of the conditions that some people said, we will only come if you don't sort of surprise us pretending that we are all one body. We don't want to be pulled by this event into some denominational structure. But they did agree that they should help collectively the starving brothers and sisters in South Russia who were living in the aftermath of the Bolshevik Revolution and then the starvation under the early years of Lenin and were suffering badly. I mean, this is also the context out of which Mennonite Central Committee emerged in North America. So in 1925, they gathered, recognizing the 400th commemoration, and used it as an occasion to collaborate in relief work. And out of that was born what became known as Mennonite World Conference. So in 2025, that organization that eventually took on a little bit more structure, but has always been a loose organization that uh, went on to become Mennonite World Conference. In North America, the biggest uh, event happened at the 450th anniversary, so in 1975, and this would be particularly among North American Mennonite groups. I don't think the Old Order groups or the Hutterites paid much attention to it. But among Mennonites in 1975, there were many events that focused especially on the 16th century and on the heroic narrative of the Anabaptists. So an artist was commissioned who painted portraits of Felix Muntz, George Blaurock, Conrad Grable. So I don't know if you've seen these three portraits, but those were commissioned, and they began to appear in Mennonite churches, in the foyers across, across Mennonite churches. Uh, there was a lot of attention given to the Martyr's Mirror. So there were some uh, Martyr's Mirror oratorio at Eastern Mennonite uh, College, Myron Augsburger created a calendar on this day in Anabaptist history. So there was mostly martyr stories, but every day had an event. Uh, and then big gatherings of Mennonites in Lancaster, in Ohio, in Indiana, that were often focused, again, on a kind of simple story of the Anabaptists as the creator uh, model of what true Mennonite belief should look like. And this was a kind of carryover uh, from the Anabaptist vision that had come 30 years earlier, but it pointed in this direction that Anabaptists offer contemporary Mennonites a baseline for belief and practice that should inspire renewal and attention. It was also a kind of folk fest. It was very much uh, focused on a time when Mennonites were becoming acculturated. 
entering into the professions, becoming more involved in commerce and business. And I think there was a new sense of a kind of pride in the folk identity of Mennonites. So a lot of emphasis on fracture, on that art form of fracture, and on the fact that we have a story to tell, and it's a heroic story of martyrs who stood up courageously in the face of opposition. And we don't have to apologize to our Lutheran and Reformed and Methodist and Episcopalian and Pentecostal neighbors for our tradition, that we have a tradition and it's worth celebrating. That was the last big event that I've been able to identify. I think the mood today is somewhat different. Uh, so the project that I'm associated with will have a, a, a different kind of uh, emphasis, but uh, it has been interesting to see how, how these commemorations have taken place in other years. So you've already hinted at both of these things, uh, but the first one is when we think about celebrating, commemorating these things, it's often tied to specific people. And you already named some of those and how that's been done in the past. Is this problematic where we're lifting certain individuals up too high? Is that something that should be reconsidered or how, how have the Anabaptists wrestled through that in the past? And then the second piece is when we celebrate again or, or remember this event that happened, we're also commemorating the fact that this was a division within the church. Uh, where the Anabaptists were breaking away from the Catholics and the Protestants. Is it correct to commemorate something like that? Or maybe not correct is the right word, but how do we think about these things in a, in the the right way? So that's kind of two questions packed into one. Um, but I'd be curious what, what your thoughts are there. No, again, those are, are very uh, insightful concerns. Uh, and ones that uh, I would take quite seriously, there is an unavoidable reality that the commemorations that churches observe about their birth are at the same time a celebration of a division of the body of Christ being broken. And it's done for understandable reasons. I mean, groups have creation stories that shape identity and that you keep going back to to sort of justify why you have developed the distinctive theological and ethical practices that has given shape to your group. And you say, well, there are good reasons for that. And yes, it was a division, but it was a division that was really about renewal. And we were never the apostates. We were always the ones who had it right. And if anything, it was the other group that broke away from us. So that's the urge. That's the temptation in telling our stories. And again, it's understandable, but to tell history is an act of power. How we tell our stories is a form of shaping identity that you should always be self-aware of. We have said in this Anabaptism at 500 project that we're concerned about right remembering. The antidote to an arrogant telling of your story is not, well, we shouldn't tell the story. It's not forgetting or pretending that history doesn't exist. I see that in some Anabaptist groups who are kind of embarrassed by the particularity of uh, Anabaptist identity and are eager to sort of blend in with generic Christians. 
And so they say, well, we worship God. We're just Bible believers. We don't worship anything human-made, and so we, we, we don't have a history. Well, that that's also not the case, and it's not healthy to pretend you don't have a history. So we all have a history. We should be attentive to it. The Bible is full of instructions to remember the past. You know, the Old Testament uh, children of Israel are told, build stone monuments. And so when people see that pile of stones, they'll say, well, why did you build that? It gives you an excuse to say, well, God was present at a crucial moment in our past at, at, at that place. And we know who we are by recounting stories of God's mighty hand and outstretched arm who brought us out of danger and who helped us find our way. You know, in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen, who is part of this Jewish renewal movement that Jesus has unleashed, this renewal movement within Judaism, he's asked to give an account for his faith. He insists, I'm not teaching anything new. I am just continuing in a tradition that you also share. And Stephen doesn't give doctrinal arguments before his martyrdom. He tells stories of other heroes of the faith and says, we're part of this tradition. So it's a long way of saying, as a historian and as a Christian, I believe in memory (laughs) and we should remember the past. But we've used the phrase right remembering. And that points to a couple of things. Right remembering uh, includes confession. So that as we think about this 500 years of Anabaptist, Amish, Mennonite, Hutterite, this tradition, we also should use it as an opportunity to reflect on the shadows. You know, every strength, every distinctive gift also bears with it a shadow side. And the shadow side sometimes has come out in ways that are unintended and yet are real. So, for example, our quest for holiness, we say Christians don't just accept Jesus into their heart. They follow Jesus. They follow Jesus' precepts, his teachings. And we do that communally. And we hold that standard of Jesus very high. And that's a a part of the Anabaptist tradition that I love. We take the teachings of Jesus. We take scripture seriously as a text to be lived. And yet that emphasis on that lived faith also has led us sometimes to a kind of arrogance. We say, well, you guys pretend to read the Sermon on the Mount. Well, we actually live it out. We do the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Those other so-called Christians don't really do it. Or we say, we, you have churches that are full of spots and wrinkles. Well, our churches aren't. You know, we have the practice of discipline and we have rid ourselves of the impurities of the world. It's a worthy thing to aspire to. It's a strength, but it also bears with it that shadow side of arrogance, of division, of presumption. So we should commemorate with a posture of confession, as in confessing our sins, but confession is also a confession of faith. I mean, we do that humbly, but also recognizing that we should give voice to the hope that is in us. We should use this as an opportunity to invite the world to the good news of the gospel as we have encountered it, not as a possession that we've hung on to all these years, but as a gift to be shared. 
So that's the spirit that we would like the Anabaptism at 500 to reflect. And we do that, again, aware that the body of Christ is bigger than the Anabaptist Mennonite tradition, and that we owe debts, as I said earlier. You know, there was, there was a popular book about 20, 30 years ago called Anabaptism, colon, Neither Protestant nor Catholic. And there is a way in which we have defined ourselves sometimes as we are neither Protestant nor Catholic. We are a, a sort of a, a, a people apart. I understand that. But we are deeply shaped by the Catholic traditions out of which, which form the Anabaptist movement. We're deeply shaped by Protestants. We should honor and respect and give thanks to those traditions that formed us. If your whole identity is being defined by who you are not, you know, we're not this, we're not that, we're not, it becomes habitual. It becomes a, a sort of a reflexive impulse in an unhealthy way. And so I want to say, yes, there was a, a division there that marks the beginning. But that division doesn't cancel the debts that we owe to what came before. And we're not Catholic, that's true. We're not exactly Protestant, that's true. But we can say that in a way that also expresses gratitude for what we gleaned from those traditions. I look on, on the Amish, you know, you could see the Amish as married monastics. When you think of the tradition of monasticism that begins with a voluntary adult decision, a vow, to become part of a committed and disciplined community that is marked, set apart from the world by choice, with distinctive dress, that is committed to nonviolence, it's committed to mutual aid. There's so many elements of monasticism that I think have been carried over in patterns of life among the Amish. If you tell an Amish person that, you know, you are reflecting, you know, they'd probably say, well, no, we, that's as furthest thing from, from your mind. And I, I get that. But there also are deeper continuities there that are interesting to reflect on. Maybe even right down to Amish singing, which sounds an awful lot like Gregorian chanting. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll leave that to other people. But I just say we celebrate our distinctives, but we don't claim we're unique. We don't pretend that Anabaptists are somehow a people apart from the body of Christ. I think what you're saying is just a careful examining of who we are and where we've been and like remembering those things well. It, am, am I am I getting that at that theme? It seems like you you're saying things like um, right remembering, which I, I I like that phrase. Okay, so that transitions really nicely to the next question, um, or what you were just sharing transitions nicely. And you're involved in the, in a project that is designed to commemorate the 500th anniversary of of the Anabaptist movement. Could you tell us more about that? Sure. The project that I'm most closely associated with 
was an initiative of Menno Media, which is the publishing arm of Mennonite Church USA, Mennonite Church Canada. It's called Anabaptism at 500. And we recognize that this is one of any number of other initiatives. We're not trying to corner the market on how uh, this event should be commemorated. We've been working closely with a group of German-speaking Mennonites, so Swiss, German, some other uh, Mennonite uh, groups in Germany called Gewacht, or Daring. That's an initiative going forward. Uh, there's an initiative in uh, Mexico City among Spanish-speaking Mennonites in Paraguay. There's a group in Indonesia. There's a small group forming. And I assume in North America there will be other initiatives. Our particular project has a number of, of dimensions to it because Mennomedia is a publishing concern. Most of them have to do with publications. And so we're envisioning, for example, a photo book of high-quality photos that show examples of Anabaptist witness in the world, and not so much looking back who we are, but where is our contemporary, where's current expressions of creative witness in the world, either individuals or groups of a diverse family of faith communities. So we want to get good photos and tell brief stories about that. We have a devotional, 40-day devotional focused on Jesus but always with some Anabaptist stories, so the life of Jesus. But the heart of our project is something that's called the Anabaptist Community Bible. And this, I think, will be the, the biggest, the most challenging part of this initiative. And the Anabaptist Community Bible begins sort of with the awareness that the Anabaptist movement began by young people who were gathered around Scripture and who read scripture with a kind of eagerness and an assumption that the words of scripture would shape how they lived. That approach to scripture has been an important characteristic, I would say, of the Anabaptist movement in at least three ways. One is we've said we read scripture together. Now, in the Protestant tradition, there's a strong emphasis on private devotions, and that's good. You know, people read Scripture and allow the Spirit to move. But in the Anabaptist tradition, we've said, ideally, you read Scripture in the company of other people, gathered around the Word, assuming that the Spirit will be revealed as you read it together. We've said we read Scripture Christocentrically, that we read Scripture through the lens of Jesus, which is an easy thing to say. It's not always easy to practice. But there is, from the very beginning, throughout Anabaptist history, an insistence that Jesus is the fullest expression, the fullest revelation of who God is for humanity, that in Jesus we get the best picture of the character of God, God's will. And so we read Scripture, read the Old Testament as Jesus did. It's part of the story. It's part of the narrative. We don't despise the Old Testament. We don't say it's all darkness and we've come into light, but we read it through the lens of Jesus, always assuming that Jesus' teachings, Jesus' example will take precedence wherever there is confusion or seemingly contradictions. Uh, and finally, we read Scripture with the expectation that we will be transformed that it matters what we read. We don't read it just for a warm feeling or just for ideas. We read it because we expect it to change how we live. The 
Anabaptist tradition has survived for 500 years because it's continually been renewed. And much of the renewal of the Anabaptist tradition has come about by a re-encounter with Scripture. And because we know that in today's context, Scripture is often either a, a brittle text that is defended sort of with white knuckles, often specific verses. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it uh, with a kind of defensiveness. Or perhaps, especially among young people, it is an archaic book whose relevance to the modern world is just not at all evident. And then a lot of us in between somewhere, you know, we go to church on Sunday, we expect to hear a sermon, we expect to hear the, something from the Bible, we know it has authority, but we don't really see it as a book that is latent with the possibility of challenging and transforming us. We'll find something new there that hasn't already been excavated somehow. So our hope is that the Anabaptist Community Bible, this project, can renew an excitement about reading Scripture together through a Jesus-centered perspective, expecting to be changed by it. When we started, we talked about it as a study Bible. In a study Bible, there are a lot of study Bibles out there. I'm sure many people have probably more than one study Bible in your home. When I first became project director, I had seen the Lutheran study Bible, and I kind of liked it. So here's a study Bible that is interpreted with marginal notes through the lens of Lutherans. I didn't agree with it, but I thought, okay, that's a nice concept. So I called the editor, uh, who happened to be a friend of mine at Augsburg Fortress Press, who had edited the Lutheran study Bible. And I said, um, you know, Scott, I'm really interested in this. I've been invited to be part of, an, of a study Bible. How did you do it? And he said, John, it's very simple. All you need to do is find the best 66 scholars, give them each uh, book of the Bible, give them a deadline, tell them to come back with their, their notes, their introductions and notes. And if they stick to the deadline, it'll be done. Well, that was interesting, but it is not how we have traditionally read Scripture. Our first impulse has not been to go to the scholars and say, tell us what we should think about a certain text. In fact, the early Anabaptists were very suspicious of scholars. Now, in the meantime, I'm grateful that we have a lot of experts who have studied the biblical languages, who know the biblical context, who have made this their, their focus. But to just say we're going to turn this over and make an Anabaptist study Bible didn't fit with my understanding of a community approach to reading Scripture. So we've modified that, and we have said we would like to invite 500 study groups mostly in North America, but the instructions are translated into Spanish, into French, into Bahasa, Indonesian. So we're open to outside of, of North America. We've divided all of Scripture into 500 clusters of three passages. So an Old Testament passage, New Testament, Psalms, or Proverbs. So all of Scripture is now in 500 segments, and we are inviting 500 Bible study groups to form and to take, you'll get assigned Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms of Proverbs, and a few instructions. We say three passages, four sessions, 
five questions. If you sign up to be part of this, we'll send you three passages. We think it can be done in four sessions. So the first session is just to get oriented, to ask what is an Anabaptist approach to scripture look like? And then one session for each of the passages. You have a scribe. We have five questions that we hope that ordinary people will, will help ordinary people sort of work through the text. And we ask that a scribe then take the, distill what they've heard in those texts and then send us the insights that you gleaned from the, each of the passages. And those insights, questions, observations, applications will then show up as marginal notes in this Anabaptist community Bible. Now, we've also asked Anabaptist scholars to write introductions to each of the canonical books, and we've asked them to write biblical context notes. So we're turning to our scholars for some, you know, there are a lot of things in Scripture that it would be good to have outside help just to, to understand, not the last word. And we've got a group of Anabaptist historians who are reading through all of the primary sources from the 16th and 17th century, because the Anabaptists wrote a lot of commentary about Scripture. And so they're reading and gleaning. So if, if Menno had something interesting to say about Psalms 12, verse 6, we will excerpt that. And so when you're reading Psalm 12, next to verse 6, you will see Menno said da, 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 uh, this short thing, what Menno said. So the end effect is a Bible that has the text as we're familiar with it, but you're reading it with a chorus of voices. You're reading it hearing how other people have encountered these texts. And we hope that you will also then be invited into that ongoing conversation around Scripture that is shaped by scholars, historians, ordinary people. So that's the Anabaptist Community Bible that we hope will be an important part of how we are commemorating Anabaptism at 500. That is a very interesting concept. Uh, so to make sure I'm getting it right, you're talking about not doing a traditional study Bible where it's like this top-down, here's what the experts say, boom, here it is. It's almost like an organic community, the sense of working together. And I don't know, it feels like the whole concept is much more approachable to the average person. Am I, am I close, to, close to the mark there on that? No, absolutely. That's what we are hoping, that this... You know, the Anabaptists, in some ways, wrestled Scripture away from the Schriftgelauten, from the learned scribes, the university-educated theologians, and said, this is a people's book. This is a book of the church, for the church. And yes, they respected the readers. They began to ordain ministers. But I think all along there has been a sense that Scripture is to be read by God's people gathered around the Word with respect for tradition, with respect for what leaders say. But it's a living text, and sometimes we have made it a dead text by saying, you know, and maybe for the best of intentions, we say God's Word is unchanging. 
Sometimes that's code, though, for my interpretation of this particular passage is unchanging, rather than a sense of God's Word as the gift of this story given to God's people, but also entrusted with the responsibility to interpret this text in its changing cultural context. Every generation comes to Scripture with new questions, and we think that's a gift that's important. There's a part of us maybe that would prefer to have the answers given, and all our task is to receive them, but I think there's more life in our understanding of scriptural reading than just receiving the tradition or the interpretation. And that to be a voluntary believer of Jesus at the bedrock of, of the adult believer's baptism is an expectation that you are participating in this ongoing responsibility of interpreting the Word of God in your time, in your place, in your setting. And we hope that will help renew that sense. It feels like it fits really well in the the thread of the Anabaptist story, where they were pushing back against this idea that the average person can't just read the Bible, you know, that the experts or the priests have to bring the wisdom down to you. But it's, I use, you use the phrase, it's the people's book. It's for any any believer to, to read. And it sounds like what you all are doing is really attempting to connect back to that original concept of how we look at scripture and how it applies to our lives. And I, I think that's, that's, that's intriguing. That's really interesting. It's very different from, uh, I had heard about this project a few months ago and I was thinking, oh, okay, it's like just a study Bible concept, but it sounds like you're going, you're taking a very different direction than that. And that, that intrigues me. That's very interesting. Yeah, I want to make it clear, we don't regard biblical scholars as a threat or as our enemy. We don't regard the tr received tradition as something that needs to be challenged, but we see them as important voices in a larger conversation, and we want to encourage ordinary people to take their rightful place in that conversation. We've chosen, by the way, to use you know, we, we debated for a long time what translation to use, and that's, as you know, sometimes a point of conflict in itself, although perhaps less so with this generation than maybe 50 years ago. But we went back and forth, the NIV, the NRSV, and in the end, we've decided to use something called the Common English Bible, which is a, a recent translation. It's a, it's a translation, 120 scholars gathered to, to work on this. So it's not a paraphrase, but it's aimed at a 7th to 8th grade readership, reader level, whereas like the NRSV, I think, is 11th to 12th grade. So it's easier to read. Uh, we discovered that many immigrant groups who, for whom English is a second language have been using the CEB, the Common English Bible. And when we started looking at it more closely, we thought, this fits with our larger goal of making Scripture accessible. Not that other translations are inaccessible, but it's one, one more step in that direction. So we'll use the Common English Bible. 
this has been very interesting. I think you've given us all a lot to think about in terms of coming up on this 500th anniversary of the Anabaptist movement and what that even means and even some things on like how we think about scripture and where we've come from. I think that's that's extremely uh, valuable. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on and sharing with us, John. I appreciate your time. For more information about Anabaptist Perspectives, to read our blog, to donate, and to see videos of the conversations you hear on this podcast, visit anabaptistperspectives.org. We'd love to hear from our audience, so leave your feedback in the comments for this podcast or send us a message through our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Anabaptist Perspectives. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We invite you to join our monthly partner program. Monthly partners are key to the financial sustainability of Anabaptist Perspectives. Partners also gain access to bonus content, including our exclusive podcast where we respond to audience questions and comments. Sign up at anabaptistperspectives.org.